Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. This is our first episode of 2024. Second week, but first episode. We had a bye week the first Wednesday of 2024, but we're back and we've got a, a, a fair amount to talk about. There's a there's a relatively packed news environment, which is a little, I feel like a little different than than what it was at the end of last year when everything seemed to sort of be slowing down and, and wasn't wasn't totally clear what was what was going on in the news that's that's sort of expected at the end of a calendar year but as we know it's not always the case because news if it if it ever operated on a on some sort of predictable schedule it doesn't do it anymore so we're going to jump right into it because what we have seen over the last uh well yesterday but building to that over the, uh, the last few days is this immunity case hearing for former President Trump. And before we get into it, I want to mention something that our executive editor has has mentioned a number of times, and it really is important to keep this in mind as a way to frame or bracket what this hearing was about because there were a lot of headlines of people saying, oh, you know, the judges weren't hearing any of it, went badly for Trump, blah, 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 blah. But the reality is the claim that Trump's lawyers were making here, certainly the claim in its totality, and it was a totalizing claim, is is just an absurd claim. And we can say that a lot of things that Trump claims are absurd, but I guarantee you that whoever the quasi adults are in Trumpland would have told you if you could if you could speak to them privately there's no way we're going to win on this absolutely no way it's a delay tactic so the real question here is how much it serves them in delay terms uh so keep that in mind as Kate and I go through this that that's what that's what this is about. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that Trump wouldn't mind if if somehow either the D.C. Circuit uh, panel first or eventually the Supreme Court on appeal said, "Oh yeah, believe it or not, you are totally immune from prosecution from any criminal infraction forever for anything you do while you are president." But that was never going to happen. This is about delay. So, Kate, let, let's just kick it off. What happened yesterday? In this hearing, and did and what did we learn, if anything? So, like you said, everyone particularly expects this argument not to fly at the D.C. Circuit because this panel has two Biden judges on it, and then one kind of 
historically Trump friendly George Bush senior appointee. But, you know, so you would think the ideological numbers are such that it's kind of set in stone. Um, Now, I would say the hearing went a little bit differently than I expected the oral arguments because the judges, I don't want to say were credulous of these of the argument, because I think in particularly they kind of saved their most withering reaction to the crux of the argument, the the kind of very sweeping immunity claims. But they did spend kind of considerable time fiddling with this jurisdiction question, which was raised in, in an amicus brief, the idea of whether they can kind of take on this question at this point. This group in particular says that it's a post-conviction question, that of immunity. So, you know, that the, the merits trial kind of has to conclude before it's appropriate for them to talk about this. And they did spend a lot of time kind of going back and forth with each lawyer on that question. Also, another point came up, which Trump's attorney, John Sauer, was really kind of eager about, which was his whole argument is that a, the immunity wouldn't cover personal acts, which is kind of how he gets around the Bill Clinton, Paula Jones stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. So he's kind of pushing, let's look back on the indictment and sort out what are official acts versus what are personal acts, which would obviously kick it back down to the district court and make the district court kind of litigate an indictment, you know, kind of go charge by charge type thing. Not that I think that they'll do those things, but it did make it less of kind of a clear shot of like, this is a stupid argument. We're dispensing with it quickly. We're going to get back on track and a little bit more muddied, I think, for people who aren't that familiar with the finer points of the arguments. But all that being said, it was pretty clear that even the Trumpiest of the judges was not super impressed by the arguments. She had this one line that Josh Kavinsky and I kind of took us aback, which was she described it as, quote, paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal law. So even the one who's kind of most inclined to agree with him here seemed pretty skeptical. And then on the other end of that spectrum, you had Florence Pan, a Biden appointee um, with the kind of the line that seemed to get the most play from the hearing, which was when she compared this to a president ordering SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival. And that under Trump team's arguments, that president would not be in any danger of criminal prosecution at all. So that's kind of where we ended. They didn't talk about timing at all, which, as you say, we were almost like most interested in hearing about. That question will be answered on its own, you know, when they hand down a decision. And so far, they've done everything in their power to kind of move really quickly. So if that holds, you know, then we're going to get a ruling from them kind of more quickly than we'd usually expect from, you know, a a federal appeals court. Now, with with the one part of this argument, or maybe you know, step down version of this argument. It sounds a little like the litigation from, I don't know, six months ago, a year ago, it's I'd lose track with Mark Meadows, where he was trying to make this argument of, well, when I did that, I wasn't just some guy. I was the president's chief of staff. And so I, I'm not sure it's 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 not the same legal doctrines, but sort of something on the order of like qualified immunity, the way a police officer, if a police officer hits someone, let alone shoot someone, it's not just 
as an ordinary person on the street. They've given some deference. Well, you're a cop. We allow we asked you to do all these things, so we don't assume that it was a bad act if you punch someone in the face. You know, it might be something you needed to do in your line of duty. Is that is that part of the question? Is it just happened that that's similar to the legal questions that that came up with Mark Meadows, or is it the, basically the same kind of line of reasoning? Yeah, well, it's similar. And then you have the kind of added piece of, and if it was an official act, the president needs to be impeached and convicted. And if he's not, if he resigns before, if he's acquitted, then criminal prosecution at that point is double jeopardy, is essentially the crux of the argument. Right. So so if if I'm understanding this now, I would I would certainly assume that there is some argument that if the president, um, that there are lots of things the president can do that, you know, ordering a war strike, ordering this, ordering that, that the president does have some ability to say, hey, I'm president. There are a lot of decisions I have to make. You can't like analyze them the way that you would the average person. There's at least in my non-lawyer mind, there's at least some kind of terrain there that I can that comes into view that I can make sense of but this idea that the impeachment trial that an impeachment trial constitutes a form of double jeopardy or that you need that a president needs to be impeached in order to be criminally prosecuted to the best of my knowledge no one has ever made any arguments like this ever and I can't imagine what the conceivable basis of it at all was it was that part of the argument treated that way. That that part seems to me ridiculous. Yeah. The judges seem to feel similarly with um, Michelle Childs in particular, who our listeners might remember from making the short list for, for the seat that Katanji Brown Jackson has now on the Supreme Court. But she, I think it was her who made this point of an impeachment is fundamentally political, right? That's why you can impeach a president for doing something that's not necessarily a crime. Because... Right. It's just a different standard, and it, and it kind of goes to the. And there's no the judicial review or anything like right. that. Right, and it's, it, it's, I mean it's yeah. in the hands of politicians, right? So I mean we call it a trial and we call it a conviction, but it is fundamentally a different thing. You know, there's no judge. It, it's it's just different. Um, so they got into that a lot, and you know the problem is here is there there's just no precedent obviously because everything trump is doing is unprecedented so the trickiness is i think you've got the judges being much more careful than i think they would in kind of other trump cases because they're very very aware that the precedent they're setting now is going to kind of rule the day for for all the presidents to come which is mm-hmm. why i think they were maybe a, sounded a little more circumspect or a little more credulous of arguments that in another context, they might just be more inclined to be like, well, that's stupid, you know, kind of moving right along. Um, right. And, and also, there's this thing, I think, where some people get really mad after oral arguments because they feel like, well, the judges didn't, didn't kind of succinctly uh, convey the, the case to the listeners, right? They didn't give a clear sense of what this case is about. And like, I get that. And I think we're a little bit trained to feel that way, especially because we're in a Supreme Court era where the liberals are nearly always just going to dissent, right? So so everything they're doing is kind of in that public educating, speaking and writing for posterity kind of right, posture. Right, right. 
but fundamentally, like oral arguments are not necessarily to educate the listeners on the case. They are so so the judges can kind of get their questions answered that weren't answered in the briefs. So I think some people were really disappointed with these oral arguments. I'm a little more of the camp of like, this is all new terrain. I think it's okay that they want to ask them some questions and like press on some points, even if they were raised by the the bad faith Trump camp and maybe right. just kind of keep our powder dry until the decision comes out and how quickly the decision comes out. Because that's, I think, is almost the biggest window for criticism. Even if they knock down the argument, but they take like a month to do it, then, then you have real grounds to be pissed off. But I, right, I don't right. really see that happening at this point. Do you think there's a... Ch- I mean, because... I'm not sure. Well, do you think there is a chance that they would pursue what you alluded to, which is this line of reasoning that it's just premature? You, you know, you appeal your verdict when you've been convicted and, and you haven't even had the trial yet. Now, it does seem to me, and again, I don't know what the standards a judge is supposed to apply in this case. But this does sound different in the sense that we're not talking about a reviewing a decision the judge made in how the trial was conducted or anything like that. Nothing internal to the trial. You're talking about should this trial even be possible since he's claiming immunity. So, but, and I I kind of don't, I would be surprised. I would certainly be disappointed if they went that path. Not that it would be damaging, so to speak, because they can just do it later. But you should be able to knock this one out pretty quickly, I think, just because, as we've discussed, the the basic the basic argument is just specious. Yeah, I think they're not inclined to do that, probably primarily because both parties don't want them to, you know, both. And they, they kind of brought this up. One of the judges asked the DOJ guy, John Pierce, you know, they're like, it, wouldn't it behoove you for us to kind of dismiss this on the grounds that we don't have jurisdiction and, and to kind of get right back into the merits? And he's like, well, I'm not really sure that would save time in the end anyway, because this question is going to have to be addressed at some point. And also, you know, like we we want this decided uh, correctly and, and blah, blah, blah. And it's an important question to raise. So the fact that both parties are like, no, we want you to decide this now, I think does also like have quite a bit of weight there because you'd have to have the judges going rogue and kind of being like, no, never mind. And then you also have the point that due to that, you know, it's not in their briefs. This was only raised in like one amicus brief. I mean, and it just shows you kind of the power of the argument that one group kind of raised this argument and it kind of was a, a repeated point of contention during the hearings. But um, I, at this point, I would just kind of be surprised. And I do think they're being cognizant of speed. And they know that to go through all this and then to be like, we're going to punt this question until, you know, a potential conviction would be like, oh, my God, you know, that is just the least time effective way to deal with uh, this question. Right, right, right. So is what else did anything else, as, as I said in the beginning, this is really all a delay tactic. I don't think any regardless of what the DC circuit does it seems almost inconceivable to me that they could get a majority on the supreme court to agree with any of trump's arguments here and i think i'm on solid ground in this case thinking that's not just like you know thinking the best this would be such a 
such a total overturning of just sort of the basic concept of what the American state is, it would it would be shocking. But is there anything else that came up that it, it, in those hearings that changed some idea we had or is worth discussing or or is anything you know beyond just kind of you know random questions that these three were interested in asking? Um, I think we we mostly covered it. I think the one thing that kind of um, gives me a similar inclination to yours about the Supreme Court, even though I'm like I'm so hesitant to make any predictions with this Supreme Court, but we talked about this in a in a previous episode, the denying of Jack Smith's request to take the question immediately and to first kind of pipe it through the D.C. court. And one reason why I think they might have done that is it gives them cover to say we don't think the appellate court erred in anything. So we're just going to kind of uphold them and like put the onus on the lower court and do what conservative judges love to do, which is when it behooves them to be like, we're supposed to be restrained. We're not supposed to be redoing the work of lower courts. We're just supposed to be, you know, the kind of stopgap review of them, um, which obviously that policy goes right out the window when they when they disagree with the lower court. But I've been wondering this whole time, like, why were there no liberal dissents on that? They're just, Mm -hmm. it it makes me think there has to be a reason. And I wonder if it was just, they know it's pretty likely the DC circuit will decide against him. And then they can just kind of uphold those findings and not contribute a whole bunch themselves, like try to keep their hands as clean as possible, knowing, you know, asterisks, knowing they will have opportunities to bail Trump out at a further point you know, if if that becomes necessary. So in that scenario, when they refused to jump that stage, they weren't just saying, we're not going to look at it now. In essence, they were saying, we're not going to look at this ever because we're very confident what the lower court is going to do. And when that lower court ruling gets appealed, assuming it's what we assume and it's rejected, that we are just going to say, nope, this looks good to us, move along. And and that's it. Either that or if they take it themselves st- you know, just still kind of making the lower court the standard bearer here, you know, like, that's all I mean, just kind of trying to do as little original legwork as possible. Right, right, right. Okay, so the next up, we have a related, but very different in many ways, and really weird story. And that is about the state prosecution out of Atlanta, Georgia, brought by the district attorney of Fulton County, Fannie Willis. Everybody knows about this one. This is the one with 19 different defendants. It's the one that Cheesebro and I'm forgetting her last name, but the Kraken woman uh, have already <laughs> uh, pled yeah, uh, uh, out to that. Well, you tell us. It, it's, it's, it's so weird, but you tell us. What is, what is this? So the Atlanta Journal-Constitution first broke the story of this filing, which is from Michael Roman, one of Trump's co-defendants, like one of the 2020 fake electors. And being represented by this defense attorney that is apparently like quite well respected within kind of Georgia legal circles. And I guess she had this big moment where she exposed that a judge was coaching prosecutors in in this other unrelated case. So defense attorneys there like really love her now. Mm -hmm. But the crux of it is that they say Fannie Willis hired this guy to, you know, be the special prosecutor to kind of like help helm the case and that she is romantically involved with this man. And then the way they kind of stretch it into, you know, case 
harming malfeasance is to say that they went on vacation together. And so his spending money on those trips was a illegal kickback that yeah. you know she hired him he's getting paid to be on this case he's using that money to take them on these romantic vacations and that is you know some that is in violation of of kind of the anti maybe even the anti-racketeering laws in Georgia and they say you know that's grounds for the case to be dismissed not just for you know Willis and and this guy to be kicked off but for the case to be dismissed completely so the weirdness the squickiness around this is that in this very long document alleging this, there's no real proof of the relationship. There's no like, you know, signed witness affidavits or communications between the two. And now the defense attorney here says that this guy, Wade, that he is going through an acrimonious divorce in the background of all this. His divorce proceedings were sealed by the judge soon after he got this appointment to be part of the team for like, you know, obvious reasons. I guess he's suddenly a person of interest and he should have a right not to have his personal stuff kind of dragged into it. So the defense attorney says that she got a bunch of documents off the docket while it was unsealed that is shows proof of their relationship, you know, proof that they traveled together or, you know, we don't know the specifics of this. Maybe it's like the ex-wife being being aware of this relationship. But she says she has them and didn't post them as part of her document because they're sealed now. And she doesn't want to run afoul of that. And, and she also contests that they were sealed improperly and that, you know, you have to have some kind of a hearing under Georgia law to do it. So she's already also in this now divorce proceeding, asking them to unseal it so she can bring in the documents that she alleges proves this relationship. And then the kind of newest thing on that front is that Willis was subpoenaed as in part of these divorce proceedings as well. So kind of that's where it stands now. Obviously, you had Trump immediately like go crow about it on Truth Social and all his foot soldiers being like, this case is over, it's tainted, um, this is the end. I think back here on planet Earth, there are, you know, two things going on here. One, you know, if this is true, and if she did hire this guy with whom she's having a romantic relationship, who, to be clear, there were some eyebrows raised at his hiring at the time because he does not have a ton of prosecutorial experience. That's um, interesting. And definitely, you know, she said that her kind of explanation for that is that a lot of kind of more seasoned prosecutors didn't want the job because of the kind of MAGA world death threats that come with it, which I also think is not completely like an implausible position. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, and, and she like she's kind of a character in and of herself, but she made this like kind of weird comment about like, well, he's my contemporary and you can't get young people to do this kind of thing because they're weak and I need to be able to yell at people on my team and have them brush it off, which is like, okay, like oh, a very okay boomer, like line <laughs> of um, discussion. But so, okay, there's the fact that this is like an HR nightmare, right? And also the perspective of if this is real, what in the world were you thinking, Fanny Willis? Like, you know, this is the biggest case of your career to date, right? You know, yeah, if you that forget to brush your teeth one day, you're going to see it on True Social, basically. Yeah. Right. You know that all eyes are on this, right? There's a huge amount of scrutiny. Like, every single news outlet has reporters following this. This is the kind of case where you avoid 
the appearance of impropriety at every turn. You know, this is like the putting the peanut farm in the blind trust kind of thing. Like, and the fact that you would take this risk and if if the defense attorney is right, go on documented vacations with this guy, like amid the trial. I mean, that is crazy. That's insane. If she did that, and it's, you know, I almost hate saying it too, because she and every other kind of, black judge or prosecutor or witness who has been involved gets maligned times a hundred by, you know, team Trump. It's their go-to like every black woman involved is going to be the number one kind of MAGA universe villain. But if this is what she did, this was so stupid. And despite everything else, I mean, bound to give his claims some kind of credence in people's eyes that this was, you know, improper. Okay, so that's kind of the court of public opinion side of things. And then you have the, will this actually hurt the case, right? Like, will this get one of the big four felony cases kind of disbanded? There, I don't really see a, a very compelling argument for that to happen. I mean, part of it is, it's certainly not good. You know, nothing about this is good, but it's hard to say that this kind of like, even if you do interpret it as a kickback scheme, and I even think there are a little bit of complications to that because like she has her own money, there's going to have to be some kind of proof that he was the one footing the bill for stuff to even make that argument mm-hmm. uh, solid. But I mean, they're on the prosecution, right? It's it's They're both on the same side. I think it would be a little bit different if like, there was one of them was on Trump side and one of them's on the prosecution side because then you're like, okay, well, that's kind of a conflict of interest. Right. It's a little bit harder to make that case here. And then the defense attorney for this guy, Michael Roman, also tries to kind of pile on. He didn't properly take the oath of whatever, being a prosecutor and these kind of other technical things, which this judge in particular has already dismissed. Like they've tried to raise this before with other people on the team. And he was like, okay, that's stupid. I'm not really going to hold with that. So it really seems like the the kickback piece is the only thing that could potentially kind of get them in trouble. And also taking this to its kind of furthest conclusion, like the judge says, okay, this sucks. And now your entire office, the whole DA's office is like, done. You know, you're not allowed to be on this case anymore. If that happens, per the Washington Post, the prosecuting attorney's counsel of Georgia would pick a replacement for for the DA's office, which actually is something that they've had to do with Fannie Willis before, because one of these fake electors, she held like a fundraising election type event for the Democrat who would end up challenging this fake elector um, for a, a position in Georgia. And so there he said, that's a conflict of interest. The DA's case can't go after this guy anymore. And then they, you know, just pick another prosecutor to right. take over the work. So that's presumably right. what he would do in this situation. And they've already got outside lawyers kind of involved because it's such a big sprawling case that the DA's office was already kind of working with some some outside people. So it's not inconceivable to imagine that if Willis and her whole office kind of got booted, the onus just kind of shifts to this people and, and presumably, you know, they hire up some other kind of outside people to shoulder the work. But I, I've been reading about this a lot and I just, it's hard to find kind of legal experts who say like, yeah, I think this case is over. It's it's much, you know, the kind of common take is like, wow, this looks terrible. This was such an error of judgment, but it's hard to see how it changes the underlying facts of, you know, the case that they're prosecuting. 
Yeah, this is I I read this and I I, I read the Atlanta Journal Constitution article about it and skimmed the actual filing. You know, within an hour of it coming out, I think a couple nights ago, and and so I did a post, and I I had to give people a, you know, first blush reaction to it, even though you know I'm not only not a lawyer, I'm not I'm not covering this part of what we do anymore, and and what you say was kind of my was my impression that this argument about well, this is a scheme to funnel money back to herself because you know paying this guy $600,000. And usually when you pay a lawyer, it's not all going to him. He's got a, a, a law firm and it's various people involved and everything. So with a case that goes on, if you're working full time, if a, if a high priced you know, lawyer in a big city is working on one case, their team is working on one case for more than a year, you can easily bill half a million dollars. That's not that's not surprising at all that this was a way to funnel money back through the vacation like that seemed, you know, a highly constructed argument. And then the other ones about you know, various kind of constitutional arguments, it did seem to me as you said, they just know they hit the gold mine. If it's true that she's having an affair with, and I'm not sure it's, I guess neither of them are married, so it's not a, an affair. It's a, it's a non-public romantic relationship. If that's true, let's just pack it up with a bunch of nonsense and kind of ship it out, and it won't matter if everybody sees that our our legal arguments of harms are nonsense. It just is so discrediting to Fannie Willis. Let's do it, and and. We're still holding back a bit because we, as you say, they, it's not that they offered no real evidence. They offered literally no evidence. They just said, we know. And, and with the vacations, we know. So, okay. And, and I guess that is not a, it actually does make sense of an argument. Like I'd show you the documents, but they're under seal and I'm an officer of the court. So I can't do that until you unseal them. It is hard to imagine a non-ridiculous lawyer would do this if there was no real evidence. And as you said, we've heard from various directions, this is a serious person, this is a respected lawyer. A respected lawyer is not going to try to deceive the court in that way. What does occur to me, as at least possible, is that all sorts of things are alleged in an acrimonious divorce. They're, not all of them are true. So it is conceivable that this is alleged. That doesn't mean it's true. And and but if something's alleged and you're if I'm your attorney and something is alleged in legal documents, I'm gonna bring that up. I, I don't need to I don't need to make the reasoning of oh, people say all sorts of crap in a in a in a divorce proceeding. Who knows if it's true? Someone said it, you you work with it. Having said all that. It's kind of hard to imagine it's not true because I kind of can't imagine we'd be here if this was just totally made up out of whole cloth. I also, just in the way that news works, even though Willis's office is saying, look, we're not going to debate this in press, in the press, where you, you'll see what our legal filing said. There are ways to kind of communicate to reporters, no fucking way. This is totally bullshit. Never, never anything. So, like, I think it's true. Now, one thing that occurs to me is 
you've reported more on this and know more about this than I do. My understanding is, is that the allegation is that the relationship precedes his hiring. Is that correct? Or is that ambiguous? I think that's right. Because part of the accusation is that she hired him when they were already in a relationship, right? right like that right, was right. The, the kind of original sin of it all. Right, right. Okay, so, uh, you know, one mitigation would be, look, you're working on the kind of case of a lifetime, you're, you know, 24-7 working the case, things happen, people start relationships, and that's not advisable. But, you know, both adults, it's ambiguous, whether someone's a boss of someone else, that's one thing. But doing it when they're already in a relationship, that's, you know, what can we say? What were you, what were you thinking? I mean, I, 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 it, it, it's kind of, it's kind of inexplicable. Like, are you fucking kidding? I mean, I, I don't mean a dublantage there. I mean, are you, are you kidding? Like, how could this happen? And, and if anything, I'm sort of, I'm sort, if this is true, I'm a little surprised that it hasn't come out already or been alluded to. A lot of people work on a case like this, right? This isn't like Fannie Willis isn't like isn't like writing up the briefs and kind of interviewing tertiary witnesses. This is DA of Fulton County, it's that's a big jurisdiction. They process tons of cases. A lot of people work here and obviously a romantic relationship can be conducted pretty privately, you know, depending on how careful you are. But going on vacations? Not, not really. Like, wow, Fanny and, and Wade are both gone. That's weird that they're both going on vacation at the same time. How strange, you know what I mean? It's just, it's it's kind of it's kind of hard to figure. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just one of these things where kind of, you know, we always talk about, you know, the unpredictable things in a, in a, in this crazy election slash trial year. And we often talk about, you know, dramatic new legal facts. One of the two candidates drops dead. You know, all these crazy things can happen. You know, this is one of those crazy things, but wow, <laughs> I couldn't have even have speculated about this one. I would have, I would have sooner, I don't know what sooner. It's just so crazy. I know. I mean, I also, going back to your point of like, it's odd that this didn't come out yet, especially because... I mean, she's she's not like a pure lawyer. She's like a politician lawyer, you know? I mean, this is a big role that she has. I mean, I... I, I don't know, I don't know this for sure, but I would expect that she is probably kind of gunning for something, a position of even higher prominence, that this was like, could be considered kind of a big career stepping stone for her, especially if she convicts him. And in that kind of atmosphere it is inherently competitive, right? I mean, she is getting this position over other people who want this position, um, who want the kind of gravitas that come with handling one of the biggest legal cases of our time right now. And all of that you would think would create an atmosphere where it wouldn't be pure collegiality. You know, it wouldn't just be kind of people who don't want to rat out their, you know, friend and coworker. And that I, it, that has struck me odd from the beginning, like that this defense attorney kind of has to rely so solely on these sealed divorce proceedings because 
you would think that if this was going on kind of in as plain view as she asserts, that at the very least, even if you couldn't find anyone with a grudge against Fannie Willis, which I, she is a prominent Black woman that's hard to imagine under any circumstances, much less one where she's involved in these very kind of like partisan fights. She's seen as a big Trump enemy. You would also think that there would be people who would say, even if they're kind of aligned with her on everything else, who would be like, this is bad. Like, this is a weird thing for you to be doing. And you should be stopped from doing it, who would be kind of willing to sign their name to something. So I, I do find it a little strange that, like you say, it's taken this long to come out and that there isn't a stampede of people, at the very least, kind of a stampede of like, right-wing prosecutors from elsewhere in the state who are like, I've been hearing this on the grapevine for forever kind of thing. So I don't know. I I, I do think you got to take a little bit of a, a wait posture, like see what their filing says, how she could possibly kind of defend herself from this. But I agree with you that it seems unlikely at this juncture, even though this is kind of coming from like a bad faith guy that this is just spun out of whole cloth because you would expect if that was true for her to say you know we'll respond in the court filing to this disgusting and baseless smear or something like that more of this scintillating content after these messages okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Back to the show. The one thing about Fannie Willis, she, like any politician and high-profile prosecutor, she's got a lot of enemies. She's also got a lot of friends. And, mm-hmm. and more than friends, she's got a lot of admirers in this sense that I was certainly told when she took on this case, when she brought this case, that a lot of Republicans in the state, like people poo-pooed it, you know, like all anything against Trump gets poo-pooed. But basically what I'm trying to convey is, again, this was conveyed to me that a lot of Republicans in the state would have known this is serious because she's serious. You don't screw around with her. She's a she is she's very smart and she gets results. Doesn't mean you're a fan of hers. You're going to support her, but people take her very seriously and that that was one of the factors sort of animating a lot of things within the Repub- within the Republican Party in Georgia. And let let's let's remember one thing about the Republican Party in Georgia. The Republican Party in Georgia is under pretty non-Trump management. Not anti-Trump exactly. Brian Kemp, the governor, was unlike uh, Raffensperger, 
and a couple of and the guy who worked with him, the sort of the ballot administrator, who really became pretty anti-Trump just because they were brought into the whole, you know, the blackmail and find me the votes and stuff like that. Brian Kemp took this different line. He Trump went totally against him, came up with a candidate to try to run him out of office, failed did not get pulled into, for lack of a better word, the MSNBC circuit, but also did not do the things Trump wanted and did not throw Trump a lifeline. And that makes the Georgia GOP a little little different from uh, other rep- Republican parties. And, and let's, let's consider it that, you know, Brian Kemp, and, you know, look, I, I don't want to valorize the guy. He's, he basically made his career on vote suppression, you know, kind of purging ballot rolls and all the kind of stuff that came up in his first run for governor when, if I'm recalling this correctly, he was Secretary of State. So he was vote administrator, you know, during his own election, all that kind of stuff. Having said that, he is one of the very, very few elected Republicans in this country who has completely gone to bat against Trump and lived to tell about it. You know, all those people who who voted for impeachment, the second impeachment, they're all gone. I think they're literally all gone. They all had to retire or they got primaried or whatever. Most of the, you know, same in the Senate, but he, Trump went after him and he failed. So anyway, uh, the Fannie Willis thing is just inscrutable and profoundly weird because, because it's, it it's, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world, what she did, but it may be the stupidest thing in the world that she did, right? I mean, people do worse things, but like, did you think this was going to f- fly? And uh, in continuation of this theme of people doing inscrutably bizarre things, we can neatly segue into the Lloyd Austin debacle, who is the Secretary of Defense who has kind of like created the most unnecessary negative news cycle for himself and the administration for similarly just baffling reasons, which is basically he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. So he, on December 22nd, had to go in, uh, you know, go under general anesthesia to get the surgery all of which he did without telling anyone. Biden didn't know about that either. Okay, so that I was I wasn't aware of that part until today. I I had been under the impression that the initial surgery was kind of done by the book, the handoff and all that kind of stuff, but apparently not. It was it no. was okay. So and then it started off this like weird chain of reactions where like a few kind of aides knew that he was going in for this surgery, but they didn't tell the White House. They didn't tell his kind of second in command. And then when they did tell her, she is, they keep in mind, she's vacationing in Puerto Rico at this time. And she's told that she's going to have to kind of take over if there's a crisis. But even at that juncture, she's not told why. She doesn't know what's going on with him either. And at the time, she offers to come back to Washington. And they're like, no, he's fine. He can kind of run things from his hospital room. And then there's a second cycle, which is that he has complications from the surgery and has to go back in and is hospitalized for like a week. And that's when this news emerged with that kind of second burst that 
Biden didn't know about that either. And that only kind of heard about this stuff in the days in the days after. And then it was all kind of inflamed because, you know, this gets out. They put out kind of a statement about he's doing well, right? He's recovering well, but still wouldn't say what was going on. And then it's only in these kind of you know, last really day or two that they fully came out and and told everybody what he was in there for, what he's recovering from. And it's just like baffling. It's baffling. I mean, it's the kind of thing where I, when I first saw this story, I was wondering, is it something embarrassing? Like, is it some kind of elective surgery that he doesn't want to like, you know, hey, Mr. President, I'm getting a nose job kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you find out it's this, you know, pretty serious thing that he had to totally go under full anesthesia for, which is like the by the book time that, you know, if he was the president, that he would probably give the vice president, you know, sign a form to handle more power. When when presidents, when presidents have, have had surgeries and this happened, happened with Reagan, obviously not just when he was shot, but happened with Reagan's happened with other people. It's happened a number of times. So yes, you, it's, it's a formal process. Right. And you would think at the very least that he would kind of tell his number two, hey, this is going on. I'm going to be under for a few hours. Like I'm, you know, and then shoot the White House an email, like let them know. So the way that this has kind of been dealt with since is that I I thought this captured it well. This is like a White House spokesperson who said it's not good. It's certainly not good, which is why we want to make sure it doesn't happen again, which I kind of think is the right posture to take here. Like this was ridiculous and stupid. And I think it's good that I'm sure like Pentagon officials are probably getting yelled at by White House people. And like you put us in this for no reason at all. And now they're doing all kinds of, you know, every department send us your procedures for when a a head person has to be absent and what you're going to do. And I think that's all good. It's so stupid. And so kind of like, I get, I get it if he on a human level, like doesn't want the whole world to know that he has cancer and that he's dealing with it. Like, I get that. But then you don't become Secretary of Defense. Like that's, the exchange you make for this huge, powerful position is you have to give up some of your privacy concerns. All that being said, Biden said he's not going to fire him. I think that's right, too. Like, this strikes me as the kind of thing that's so stupid that you make sure you say you are absolutely never doing this again. Like, from now on, you are letting the White House know when you get a teeth cleaning and like you ream him out and kind of ream out everybody else and say, we're not having another news cycle about this. And then I think you move on. And I actually think it's a demonstration of like, I think it mostly comes from Biden's loyalty to his cabinet members, but I do think that is a little bit of a demonstration of like maturation from Democrats in terms of you don't have to respond to the right wing bait. Like it is bad faith. And they are, of course, they're going to say this is impeachable. He should be fired while, you know, the Trump cabinet was like 12 of the biggest clowns you'd ever met who were like doing all kinds of malfeasance before, during and after. Um, So from that perspective, I think Biden's doing the right thing. I think they shouldn't be fired. I think they should like do all these memos about proper procedure and then they should move on. And then if reporters keep bringing it up, be like, yeah, he took full, you know, Austin took full accountability. Biden appreciates that. He has faith in the job that he's doing. You know, we're moving on. And that's that. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, a couple things. One for our, for our listeners, you know, Secretary of Defense is not like other cabinet secretaries in this sense. And not just because, well, war is a bigger deal than whatever whatever they do at the Commerce Department that no one knows what it even is. 
the key is under something called the Goldwater Nichols Act, which is a reorganization of the entire US military establishment, and I believe 1986, they created a system where the actual chain of command, how the orders get ordered, you know, get get made, president to secretary of defense to combatant commander. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs is actually not part of the chain of command in that sense. He's the statutory advisor, military advisor to the president, secretary of the army, chief of staff of the army. So the civilian head of the army, the uniformed head of the army, they're not in that chain of command. The combatant commanders are head of CENTCOM, Central Command, you know, that runs the Middle East. Pacific Command, those have a general or an admiral who's in charge. So not having the Secretary of Defense around is a non-trivial issue. That Biden can't just call up the kind of the guy on the ground in, you know, in Qatar or Bahrain or whatever and say, hey, that other guy's not around. Let's work directly. That's not how it works. There's like a real legal issue here. So that's that is one thing. What is what I'm a little taken aback by, and this I actually only learned this in this conversation. I had been under the impression that the initial surgery was done more by the books, that everyone was notified. And that had made me considerably more sympathetic because our understanding is he has a surgery, like a week after the surgery or something like that. He has some major complications. He's in terrible pain. They rush him to the hospital. He's in the ICU. You know, you're, uh, who knows? He may not have been, uh, you're in horrible pain. You're not like, ah, I got to call the president. You know, it's, it's, it's whatever. And his, they notified the joint staff basically immediately the next morning. And maybe this was, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning or something like that. So that happened immediately. And the, the, the documents were signed to do that handover. So the deputy secretary of defense, she was in charge at that, at that point. They had done the paperwork that she now was the acting secretary of defense. The problem was she didn't know that, which you want her to know, right? Just, <laughs> I don't know. She wants to kind of do a, a ketamine session. I don't know, right? She needs to, <laughs> she needs to stay on top of things. And the they didn't tell the service secretaries and you know the 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 chief of staff of the army. They didn't, and they also didn't tell the White House. Those are that's that is much less than ideal. But again, I saw it in the context of the sort of the emergency, you know, kind of uh, thing. And so that and. One of the reports that that the reason it took a couple of days for the White House to be notified there was that his chief of staff, Austin's chief of staff, was out sick, and that he sort of dropped the ball. Like, okay, you know, like sort of comedy of errors, everything going wrong. But the fact that it wasn't done the first time, when it was a planned thing, not like done on an emergency basis, that's that's just a screw up. And I still believe what I believed before, which was I just see no, there's nothing to be gained by firing him over this. Pretty sure he's not going to do it again. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's where it is. Although, as I said, even during this conversation, it seems more serious or 
a bigger screw up than I realized, I think, when I wrote about it yesterday, because I didn't, I didn't realize that the plan thing had also not been, you know, that they'd basically uh, kept it secret. And that's a whole different thing, because again, a lot of my thinking was, he's rushed to the ICU in the middle of the night. They're, you know, blah, 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 blah. The, the other thing with this, which is an interesting question, like, I'm not sure the defense secretary needs to tell us what his medical condition is as long as it doesn't immediately affect his ability to do the job. He's not the president. You know, we don't need to, I don't think we need to or necessarily have a right to know, you know, every, the sort of the nitty gritty details of what he's dealing with. I mean, people, I'm sure some people disagree with that. That's fine. But it is different from the president where you need to say like, we need to know that you're, you know, good to go for years into the future, blah, 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 because you're this kind of the constitutional linchpin of the whole, of, of the whole system. But certainly, certainly you need, everybody needs to know if the secretary of defense isn't going to be available. That's just, you know, it couldn't be more obvious. And, and yes, very, the whole story is very weird. And, you know, I don't at all, want to make light of it from his position like it's a it's horrible right everything about it is like horrible i was really hoping that it was going to be some funny elective surgery that would have some like comedic value but you know so like just a toe sucks. extension or something yeah, like that exactly. yeah exactly yeah, yeah. um but you know the other piece of it is also like it's not like prostate cancer is rare or like unheard of i mean how many senators have we had announce that they have it, or at least members of Congress, even in this past term, I think there have been Mm -hmm. two or three. Um, So it does make it a little more baffling in terms of, it's not like a, you know, maybe a degenerative disease that would put his ability to like do the job into question. I think it was the kind of thing that they, I, I kind of, I agree with you. I don't think he had to make it public, but if he did, you know, if they put out some statement, like he's battling this and yeah, it's all, not we're like, going to jump through all the hoops and everything. I think people would be like, oh, that's really sad. Like we're praying for you. And that would kind of be like the extent of it. Yeah, no, I think that is a hundred percent right. And it just does. I don't know. And the funny, the, the, I'm not sure this really has anything to do with it, but it's worth noting that he, I think he was a f- four-star general. Yeah, that's he's right. He's not, he's not, he's not a, I mean, he was a, he's career military and mm-hmm. a senior general. I don't know, I don't know if just how high ranking, but I think pretty high ranking, like one of those guys who's, who had one of the um, combatant commands or something like that. Yeah, he's four-star. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe was, you know, kind of high level on the joint staff or something like that. It's very weird. And um, I think that's, I think our verdict. On that. Yep. So uh, that's the, you know, Lloyd Austin and Fannie Willis kind of competing for the just <laughs> bonehead decision uh, award of the week. Pretty much. Um, and we're going to wrap up here talking a little bit about our initial caucuses, which if you can believe it, election season is like almost really super officially upon us. The Iowa caucus is on Monday. We're not expecting any surprises there to do a little like curtain reveal. Um, I'll be covering it with uh, editor Nicole LaFond and our kind of like, you know, when we have to do pull out some like big, long analytical pieces will be in the case of a Trump losing or B Trump not winning by double digits. (laughs) Like that's the kind of race we're looking at. You know, if Trump didn't win by like 30 points, that would be the shock. You know, I think there's basically no chance 
that that happens, much less that he loses. And really, the more exciting of these kind of initial contests will be in New Hampshire, because that's the only place where anyone has gained any ground on Trump at all, even though the amount of ground even is kind of up in the air. And by this, we're talking about Nikki Haley, who has made inroads in New Hampshire by some measures, though it's not at all clear. This week, we got two polls. A CNN University of New Hampshire one released Tuesday had Trump leading Haley 39 to 32%. Good for her. But then a USA Today Boston Globe Suffolk University poll released the same day had Trump up 46% to her 26. So quite a range. Um, The 538 average right before we started recording has him at 42 and her at 30, which again is still a horse race kind of compared to everything else we've got going. But, you know, that's kind of the place where if there's going to be any quote unquote kind of shaking up of this race, that's where it's going to happen. And now I think the bad news for Haley there is that New Hampshire is super, you know, idiosyncratic in a way that even if she kind of pulls off the win there, doesn't necessarily bode that well for her path to come. You know, like New Hampshire is particularly, you know, doesn't have the same like kind of evangelical fervor of most of Trump's base. I think 39% of the state's electorate are quote unquote undeclared voters. So they can vote in either primary. There's also just kind of a big like independent streak in the state. And they have a history of kind of either reviving dead campaigns or boosting someone from obscurity to the top spot. You know, you think you got Gary Hart in 84, Clinton kind of storming into second place in 92, and then McCain obviously in 2000 and 2008. So- And actually those- Hillary, Hillary Clinton- yeah. That in 2008, I think I'm pretty certain I got this right. I'm remembering this right. Obama won Iowa. Mm-hmm. And there was a week of like, oh my God, the sky is falling from the heavens. How, you know, this is no one could have imagined. And then Hillary won New Hampshire. And and the idea was he had so much momentum, he was going to storm into New Hampshire, and then it was just done. And she won New Hampshire. Now, obviously, he got the nomination, but that set the terms of everything that came later, which was that it was a slugfest all the way you know, just every, every single... So yes, there there is that thing, as you said, it's everything about the New Hampshire system, the electorate. New Hampshire used to be very conservative. It's not very conservative anymore. It's generally a blue state at the presidential level, although always close. But even when it was conservative, it was not conservative in the sense that the modern GOP and certainly not the Trump GOP is heavily evangelical, Southern, all that kind of stuff. There's the uh, there's there's the matter you said of that you know basically anybody can anybody can can vote. So th- there's there's all those things, but you know the, I think the next up is South Carolina, where Nikki Haley was governor, and Trump is like a million points ahead of her, and no one thinks that's gonna. That, that that that's going to change. So, but, you know, all that, if she did do surprisingly well, whatever that means, that you could have Trump having to work for a while at securing the nomination 
even even if even if he even you know because most of the uh, GOP primaries and caucuses are winner take all, so kind of doesn't matter how close someone gets. But still, it keeps it it keeps the conversation within the GOP. The one thing I you know the only thing I can think that is like adds a touch of uncertainty into my mind is that these races are so uncontested that in a place like Iowa, like, are a ton of Trumpers going to really, you know, show up at the, at the caucuses? Like, why? He's already nominee. And I mean, added, obviously, that applies to just as much everybody else, but it does. But added piece on Iowa, it's expected to be the coldest Iowa caucus in history. It's going to be seven degrees. So they're going to have to weather yeah, some maybe, adversity. Well, maybe no one will win. Maybe no one will show up. Right. I mean, why would you show up? It's He's the nominee. So that does introduce some weirdness. I mean, you talked about, you know, like reviving dead campaigns. This is more like, you know, one of those stories when they like animate a golem right these these campaigns were never alive so it's not even it's not, it's not even quite like that but you know for obvious partisans and patriotic reasons i would love there to be a surprise of some sort but i don't know you know nikki haley the 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 is she the most boring of the candidates she's got to be pretty close i mean at least DeSantis is like deeply weird yeah. Like that's interesting. And Chris Christie is Chris Christie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy is clearly a psychopath. I mean, that's that's good for yeah. something, right? Like but you know, two things on this, one of which is in addition to everything we've said about New Hampshire, Biden is not on the ballot there because, you know, we'll remember kind of team Biden said we're not doing the states in their normal order this year, which both was to address this kind of like long-term concern that the earliest primary states are super, super white and don't include, you know, kind of the backbone of the democratic base. And then also because we know that Biden in his run was not doing very well until he hit South Carolina and uh, states that kind of have more diverse electorates, but he won't be on the on the ballot, which kind of contributes more to this sense of New Hampshire is just a weird place, which is like if you're a Democrat who loves participating in these kind of early election activities as Iowans and New Hampshireites do like to do. I mean, if you're going to vote, if you're like a Biden person and you're going to vote in this, you're not going to vote for Trump, right? You're going to vote for Haley. So that's just another added piece. And then also speaking of Chris Christie in New Hampshire, he's like drawing 12% in most of these polls or somewhere around there, which obviously Haley's going to need if she's going to beat Trump there. But he keeps saying he is only going to drop out if he doesn't have a good showing in New Hampshire. So he is also, you know, we're reaching the point, the kind of water's edge of the like, you know, thanks for your service, Chris Christie. Like, I don't actually think he ever really did what he said he was going to and be the big Trump antagonist. Low energy, low energy. Yeah, and kind of aimless and ended up attacking other people. And it's all just the self-aggrandizement of it all really seemed to eclipse any like effectiveness from him. But at the very least, if you're doing this for the reasons you say you're doing this and not just to get a permanent spot on CNN or whatever, like it's in, it behooves you to support Nikki Haley at this point. So drop out and kind of throw your support and whatever money you have kind of behind her because 
a win in New Hampshire. I mean, that seems to be this all kind of on the board for her at this point. I mean, like you said, I think she's down 30 points in South Carolina, which is the state where she's best known and was most popular. So uh, New Hampshire kind of seems like the end of the road and the only opportunity for anyone to challenge Trump at all, which you can also see in Trump's attacks. Like they've started doing a lot more birth or conspiracy stuff about her and kind of completely forgetting about DeSantis now. That's the, the one thing. I mean, on the one hand, yes, Chris Christie should absolutely drop out and give his support to, um, to Nikki Haley. On the other hand, kind of like none of it matters. Right. So does he really have to, like, for the good of America, since, since it truly doesn't matter? The one thing I will say about, um, about Christie, like, you know, if, I mean, it's, it's, it's so sad. Like DeSantis is, I think, at least one of the polls I saw, like literally down to 5% in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So like if he drops out, there's no, he, he doesn't have any, he doesn't have any tokens to give to the next guy, right? But if he dropped out, very good chance that he would just half his people, maybe more than half his people go to Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, these, this isn't anti-Trump versus Trump. It's, it's, it's whatever they are kind of friends of Trump. I don't know what it is. But the thing about Chris Christie is he's the one candidate in that race that I think you can make a decent argument. If you're for Chris Christie, you're not for, you're not going to go to Trump. You must really not like Trump. It just, even though, even though in some ways, Chris Christie is very temperamentally like Trump, not, I mean, in, I think, very important ways, not like Trump, but still the kind of the ball buster and kind of bullying and all that kind of stuff. But he could conceivably, I mean, that's really the thing is that he's holding what, you know, probably the only significant anti-Trump votes. Obviously, people can, people can look at the polls, right? I mean, people, this isn't like when you release your delegates, right? He doesn't, voters can make their own decision. And so, that also kind of makes me wonder whether it even would matter. Who knows? I think fundamentally, we know this does not matter. He's going to be the nominee. But, you know, history is unpredictable. And, and I do, as I said, he's going to be the nominee. But if he had to spend a non-trivial amount of the winter and spring, for lack of a better word, beating the crap out of Nikki Haley and attacking her constantly and being in a narrative of having to fight for dominance of the Republican Party, that matters because you, if you're the incumbent president, you want you want to get started with the real, you know, with the real race as early as possible. We want the other guy to be still, you know, getting his own his own house in order. So, you know, we could have a surprise, and it could mean something. Exactly, and I think Trump. You know, I mean having him kind of locked into some semblance of a battle with a woman of color is just going to bring out his most heinous tendencies, which, to be honest, should be brought out. Like, people should be reminded of this stuff. Um, I think part of the problem is that he has been too, like, off the stage and people have forgotten just how bad he is. Yep. Yep. No, I think that's right. Although at 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 a certain level, you'd say, like, you know, bring them out. He was he was basically doing a press conference outside of the courthouse yesterday saying if the judges don't rule in his favor, he's going to like totally have his people blow stuff up. So, you know, it's out. Yeah. But I but, but better it, to keep it centered. Yeah. He doesn't have the self-restraint not to. And you know that he's so undisciplined that, there. you know, if if she's the main antagonist to him, like 
like you say, that's where his energy is going. It's not going to go against Joe Biden. It's going to go against the immediate threat. And just fundamentally, the question is almost like, would you rather have Trump run unopposed or run against someone who almost has no shot of winning? Like neither are you know super thrilling options, but you're going to pick running against the person that's not a threat. No, absolutely. He's delaying that inevitable thing as much as possible is all gravy for the Democrats. You know, that, that, that there's always that line of people, when people complain about a fractious primary, there are always people who say like, oh, it's going to make the winner in fighting form. Like, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's just and, stupid. Know, yeah. The, the, one, the one example people always point to is Hillary and Obama. And as a single data point, there's that has some logic to it. I think if you look at the internal dynamics of that year, he did well in the general in spite of the fact that he had a highly fractious, divisive, often angry primary that was not only angry, but you know, it's, it's such ancient history now that it's, e- that it's uh, easy to forget, pitted two critical Democratic constituencies against each other. You had two constituencies who felt that history was calling them for that year, the first woman president with all that represents, and at the same time, the first African-American president. And both of those, there was so much, and now look, obviously there were a lot of black supporters of Hillary. There were a lot of, you know, white woman, white female supporters of Obama. But still there was that sense that you had two critical components of the Democratic coalition feeling for very legitimate and profound reasons. This is the year. This is the year. And one of them had to come up short. In general, though, your nominee comes out of the primary bruised and mangled. That's that's not a help. You don't come out in fighting form. That's just not how it, that's not how it works. And the only kind of situation where that truism might actually be true, I think would be with someone who is untested on the national stage, right? Who like doesn't. Untested and unknown. Right. Who isn't, isn't used to it and hasn't figured out their footing and people don't know them yet, which is the opposite of this situation. So it's like, (laughs) you're telling me, you know, Trump needs to go head to head with Nikki Haley to kind of be at the top of his game. Like (laughs) Trump's game is where it's at. That's where it's always been. That's where it's staying until he is, you know, carried off in shackles or disintegrates into the ground. So yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Okay, well, we I think we've okay. covered a, a broad range of of um, I was going to say news products, but I won't go that far. <laughs> um, in any case, uh, hope you've enjoyed the first episode of the new year. We got a lot more coming, and we will talk to you next week with the next edition of the pod. Yep. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.